0: Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Amen. Well, we're uh, kicking off a little series here called Building Community, so let me give you some prejudicial statements at the beginning seems to me that the church should be the most loving place on earth. That was weak. (laughs) I mean, shouldn't it be that you could walk into any church around the world calling itself by the name of Jesus Christ and find it to be a loving place, in fact, the most loving place on earth? By logic, it would mean I believe that church, given, you know, its key leader, Jesus, should be a loving place where he prioritized loving God with all our heart and loving each other as we love ourselves. That It would stand a reason then that this community becomes this place that is inexplicably loving to one another, like, like mysterious, weirdly loving to one another, like beyond logic, like how Jesus described it. I, I'm not saying love those who love you. I'm saying love those who mistreat you love your enemies who intend you harm that kind of love weird kind of countercultural love that's that should be logical and then if that's true if the church then is the most loving place on earth they should also be the safest place on earth amen where i come in with all my junk and find myself in a place of belonging where we're all like yeah i got junk too I got junk too. I'm not okay. You're not okay. Remember that great book in the seventies, older people help the younger people. It was called I'm okay and you're okay. Except none of us are okay, are we? But that's okay. You understand what I'm saying? Because that's true. I'm not okay and you're not okay. We're not okay, but that's okay. Because that is the common trait of human beings to have issues. We all got them. Some of you cover them up better than others of us. Some of us have to talk about them every week. <laughs> and You get to listen. So then, not only should we have the most loving place and the safest place, then it also ought to represent the very best of community life. And it seems to me that if we just stop there and we just said, I'm going to ask a few questions. Is it the most, in your experience, even as people who are still here, which, by the way, millions are fleeing the church in the last few decades. Millions. We're not talking about a few. People going, I'm done. It didn't do what was promised. And I'm pretty sure that's not because Jesus let anybody down. I'm pretty sure it has something to do with the community of faith messing something. That's why we get books like this. They love Jesus, but they hate the church. Hmm. I mean, that's not entirely fair because I don't know if you know this, but the church is run by human beings and human beings are fallible. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like the government where everything works perfectly. (laughs) You know, our corporate America where everything flies through just... Christinely, are the entertainment industry where everything is above reproach. The church struggles a little bit because human beings are involved somehow. But it would seem logical then that this ought to be this place of immense community, immense connection, where we're on purpose doing something differently. And I wonder... Is that been your, we who've stayed? Could you say, in my experience, in the life of the church, I have experienced within the context of the church this great love, this great safety, and this great community? Because some of us would go, well, no, I keep going in spite of. <laughs> Amen? And so we're invited and called to this thing of community building. Paul, in his relationships with the church at Corinth, Which, by the way, this is a theme of Paul's writing. All of his letters are deeply entrenched in this idea of unity, this idea of community and what happens in it. And if you read the narrative of the New Testament, then you find out that one of the things that's happening in the birth of the New Testament church is community at a level that no one's ever seen it before. I mean, no one on the planet had ever seen anything like the love and community that was happening in the church It wasn't because they had great evangelism. It wasn't because they had a pristine music program. It wasn't because all the student-level ministries were thriving. It wasn't because there were beautiful buildings. It was because they had community that the world had never seen, and people flocked to be a part of it because they longed for community. So I'm going to read you an article that appeared in the New York Times, written by somebody named John Leland. And as I was doing research for this series, I I came across this article, and I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, I'm astounded at how many things he has to say that Paul would go, Yeah! Or maybe if he read Paul, he'd go, Yeah. But here it is, the New York Times, John Leland, an article that has to do with community. Here's what neuroscientists think are happening in your brain in relationship to community and loneliness. The human brain, having evolved to seek safety in numbers, registers loneliness as a threat. The centers centers that monitor for danger go into overdrive, triggering a release of fight-or-flight stress hormones. Your heart rate rises. Your blood pressure and blood sugar level increase to provide energy in case you need it. Your body produces extra inflammatory cells to repair tissue damage and prevent infection and fewer antibodies to fight viruses. Subconsciously, you start to view other people more as potential threats, as sources of rejection or apathy, and less as friends and remedies for your loneliness. In small doses, loneliness is like hunger or thirst, a, a healthy signal that you're missing something and to seek out what you need. But prolonged over time... Loneliness can be damaging, not just to your mental health, but also to your physical health. Even before the pandemic, the United States Surgeon General Vivek Murtha said the country was experiencing an epidemic of loneliness. Driven by the accelerated pace of life and the spread of technology into all of our social interactions. With this acceleration, he said, efficiency and convenience have edged out the time consuming messiness of real relationships. That is a powerful paragraph. Four years ago, the British government appointed a minister of loneliness to address the growing concerns among the public. One town set up happy-to-chat benches with signs reading, sit here if you don't mind someone stopping to say hello. The model proved so popular that it spread around England and to Canada and Poland. Yet there are interventions that can help. Dr. Kasiapa says... For years, people thought the best thing you could do for a lonely person was to give them support. Actually, we found that it's about receiving and also giving back. So the best thing you can do for someone who is lonely is not give them help, but ask them for help. So you give them a sense of worth and a chance to be altruistic. Even if we're getting the best care, we still feel lonely if we can't give something back. The care is extremely valuable, but it's just not enough. She also suggested a regular practice of gratitude and altruism, both of which counter a mindset of seeing others as threats. Did you ever imagine you'd open the New York Times and it would say, here's what you need to do for better mental health. Practice gratitude and caring for others. (laughs) But that's very important. But real remedies to the problem of loneliness, Dr. Mertha stressed, must be addressed not just by lonely people, but by the culture that's making them lonely. We ask people to exercise and eat a healthy diet and take their medications, but if we truly want to be healthy, happy, and fulfilled as a society, we have to restructure our lives around people. Right now, our lives are centered around work. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. I mean, who imagined that all this was true except Jesus was speaking about it and Paul was writing about it in the first century? In fact, his vision was, how do you remedy this situation in the life of the community and culture? You build a church and you build a church that represents the most loving place on earth, the safest place on earth, that exercises and exhibits and participates in the very best kind of community life. So let's talk for a minute about what's going on in Corinth. Corinth is is arguably the most powerful metropolitan city of the ancient world. I, I think you could argue that it is far more important and diverse than the city of Rome. And so what's going on is partly having to do with geography. Everybody ready for a little geography lesson? Okay, this is, this is the teaching piece of this. So if you know you wanted the spiritual part, that's at the end. This is kind of in the middle. So if you look at the Grecian peninsula, you know it's shaped like an hourglass. In the northern part, you have Athens and sort of the access to the European continent. In the southern part, you have the, what we call the Isthmus of Peloponnese and uh, the city of Sparta. So if you think about the ancient world. In the middle of that, at the center point of that hourglass, that narrow little isthmus in the middle, uh, that is about four miles across. And so you're in the Mediterranean Sea, although one is the Aegean at that point, and the Ionian Sea, and you know, blah, blah, blah. But what you get then is you get from Sparta and Peloponnesus, all of that wealth moving from the sea north into the European continent. Everything coming from the east in Asia is arriving at that area, Everything coming from the west in Italy and all of the western, you know, uh, part of the world, they're arriving there. And nobody wants to traverse the bottom of the peninsula. It's one of the most dangerous sea lanes in the world. And so what was happening in the ancient world is that people were putting to port at that narrow strip of land. And they were either offloading their cargo and hand-carrying it to the other side and reloading it and heading. Or, uh, I'd love to have seen this, they were actually taking the ship out of the water, rolling it on logs across the four miles, and relaunching on the other side. And this was happening from east to west. Now there's a canal there. But this was happening from east to west and from north to south. All the wealth of Europe was coming down to the seaports. All of the wealth from uh, around the world was pushing northward. And right in the middle of all of this is the city of Corinth. And that means in the first century, the city of Corinth was one of the wealthiest, most diverse places on earth. Entrepreneurs flocked to Corinth. Because if you wanted to make a lot of money, you go to where the action is. And so all kinds of people were thriving within the context of Corinth. It was one of the wealthiest cities in the world. Along with that comes not only entrepreneurs for the higher tastes of human beings, but for the lower tastes of human beings. Corinth was the original sin city. I mean, you could do anything. You could purchase, participate in almost anything. It was uh, in the center of the city was a, a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, so you know, the goddess of love. So there was a lot of rationalizing, a lot of indulgences going on. Between the Greek philosophy and the wealth of the city, you could rationalize almost any behavior. And so the city of Corinth was just known around the world as this place where anything goes. All There is no restraint. Indulge yourself. Find yourself. There's no one judging you. Just go be. And Paul, on his second missionary journey, says, you know where we need a church? We need a church at Corinth. That'd be an awesome place. I just have to, people be like, yeah, that's not a good idea. I don't see that taking off. I mean, they got just about everything they need. But Paul knew they lacked one thing, a community that was safe and loving and that cared deeply about who they were and where they came from. So Paul comes to court. He spends 18 months there. You can look it up in Acts chapter 18, tells the whole story. He comes, he spends 18 months there, and he emphasizes to them this reality. We are bound together by a common belief. I don't know what it is about human beings, but when you stop and you think about this, you know, because we say we ought to be the most loving place, and everybody almost said amen. And then we ought to be, you know, the safest place on earth, and no one said amen. And then we ought to experience community life like no other place on earth. And why don't we? What stands in the way? There is something in our human nature that tries to seek out other people who are just like us. That's our favorite thing. You know what I love? I love when people look at me and go, you are perfect. (laughs) You know what I don't like? You know, you could mature a little. And here's how. I don't like that so much. Do you? No, we don't like that. So we don't seek it out. We don't want diversity. We want some kind of homogenous existence, and that's really defined the life of the church. Let's get a whole bunch of people who are thinking, and if somebody thinks differently, let's get rid of them. There are other churches for them. They can go to one of those kind of churches. And so Paul comes along, and he says, you know what? We ought to be bound together by our commonality. We shouldn't focus on our differences. We should focus on our commonalities. Wouldn't that transform people's lives? If we just for a minute said, I'm not focused on why we're different. I'm focused on what we have in common. And Paul said, here's what you have in common. A loving God who gave you life. A loving God who cares about who you are and where you came from. In your distinctiveness. Your race, your culture, your political perspective. All of that stuff that... that God invested in this mysterious diversity of the world, amen? Have you traveled? Are you guys okay? I mean, it's a beautiful fall day. For all we know, next Sunday will be 90 degrees. You ought to be energized right now. You ought to be, like, living the life. This is, this is fall. We only get a few days of it. You ought to be pumpkin-spicing your head off today. I mean energy. And Paul says, you know, we're coming together in this. We're looking at each other for our commonalities, not our differences. We're not focused on why we're different. In the life of the church, we are a remedial culture and it has infected the church. What's wrong with you? Let me fix it. How about what's right with you? And let me celebrate it. What's what's so good about you? Let me talk about it and call it out and appreciate it and say it. We all love it. Why don't we do it? Jesus was like, let me simplify it. Why don't you love God with all your heart love your neighbor as yourself? You like it, they'll probably like it. You don't like it, they probably won't like it. But it's my job to tell them. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. So he comes to this place and he begins to teach him. He's there 18 months. He establishes The church does well. It thrives. Who knew? That in this city that had so much that they needed this place of personal connection and life and community and faith. But they did. And so Paul moves on to Ephesus after 18 months. In a very short amount of time, someone comes and says, hey, there are problems in Corinth. And what are the problems? People have come from Jerusalem with letters to tell them what they needed to do doctrinally. And it has divided the church. Some thought they should do this and some thought they should do that. I'm so glad we don't do that anymore. Paul, who had poured 18 months into, look up, follow God, listen, have divided and started looking at each other and dividing over doctrine. Not only that, there's a couple of prominent teachers who have risen in the church, actually good teachers, Apollos being one of them. And they have decided who they like and who they don't like. And they have divided into factions over who they like as their favorite teacher. I'm so glad we don't do that now. And so Paul decides to write a letter. They've divided over other things. You know, should we eat food offered to idols? Should we not eat food offered to idols? You know, uh, sexual purity is a big topic of discussion coming from the Greek culture, living in Corinth. You know, some people are like, hey, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. I was like, I don't know if you should. Don't know if you should. So Paul writes what we have is 1 Corinthians. Now, just so you know, just so I can confuse you, but you will know this. We believe that Paul wrote four letters to Corinth. We believe that they are contained within our two letters. I won't go through all of the details, but you may find yourself, if you read 1 Corinthians, you'll get around to chapter 5, and he'll say, In my previous letter, I told you, and then you go, whoa, this is 1 Corinthians. How can there be a previous letter? We believe the previous letter is contained in the middle of 2 Corinthians. If somebody told you where to look, you would be reading along and go, You know, if I stop here and start here, that fits. And this stands alone. (laughs) I always wondered how we got from there to there. (laughs) We kind of think that's the previous letter stuck over there. And then we have the severe letter where Paul then just really gets angry and tells them off. (laughs) But we think they're all contained within our two letters, four letters that he writes to say, let's get back on track. 1 Corinthians is deeply devoted to saying, here's what's dividing us. Let's come together. It culminates in chapters 11 and 12 when he begins to give us this powerful illustration about the gifts of the Spirit and the diversity of the body. And you, of course, know what happens at the end. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal into that chapter 13, the chapter of love. We're going to spend the next four weeks in these two chapters. We're just going to talk about what's going on and what he's teaching and what's happening. Everybody okay? Yeah. All right. Good. First Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12.1. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagan somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of workings, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. If you can't memorize any other verse in this series, memorize number 7 of chapter 12. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. What is the definition of a spiritual gift? I really like, you know, uh, how a couple of the writers listed it out. It's basically, you have been given gifts for acts of service in the life of the church. You have been given gifts and talents by which you might serve. Is that simple enough? We make this weird. We make spiritual gifts very weird. Uh, the premise of the scripture is God has equipped you with manifestations of the spirit for the common good. Here's the problem for most of us. We take the manifestation of the spirit in our life and we believe it's for us perpetuating our own story and our own life. Most of us. That's what we do. We work on us. With our gifts, we work on us. So he starts out by saying, listen, don't forget this, that at one point as you were going along, you consulted with mute idols and you thought you were getting a word. So maybe as you think about you have exactly what the spirit is saying, you should approach that with humility because at one time you thought the mute idols were telling you something. (laughs) So here's a broad sense. The life of the spirit reverences certain things. The life of the Spirit reverences certain things. So let's talk about four things that I think matter that we get from the teaching. Number one, we are sensitive to common reverence. We are sensitive to common reverence. If we want to build unity in the life of the church, we build around something. And here's sort of the non-negotiable, Jesus is Lord. We, We build around the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Even the ancient, you know, the Apostles' Creed, they didn't have a lot to say, but they had this to say, we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary. We believe he died, was crucified, was resurrected to new life. We believe he'll come to judge the quick and the dead, the Apostles' Creed. We we believe in our creedal statements in this reverence. And, you know, we live in a culture of deconstruction. Everybody know that term, deconstruction? You know what it means? It means that people are taking apart all of our old beliefs to see how they work, which, by the way, is a good practice. Not a bad thing. There's a lot of things that we believe and have been taught that aren't true. But they held up well in the culture of the church. And so deconstruction is not a bad thing, particularly young people are very good at deconstruction because they're basically going, yeah, then, yeah, hmm, that don't seem right to me. <laughs> that, don't seem, that don't seem right. And when the church can't let our kids and our generations behind us have room to ask big questions and deconstruct, what are we scared of? <laughs> let them deconstruct. But in the deconstruction, there needs to be times of rebuilding. And there also need to be spaces of reverence. And one of the spaces of reverence, of common reverence, is the lordship of Jesus Christ. There are just certain things we just don't get into. That's not the life of the church. And Paul's just saying up front, listen, there could be a lot of stuff going on. But right here at the core, right here at the core, there is a common reverence. And a part of the life of the spirits is a reverence for the things at the core. Amen? That's pretty simple. That's pretty simple. Number two, not only do we have a common reverence, but we also are sensitive to a common source. Paul recognizes there's a variety of gifts. In fact, he says that every one of the people who are a part of the community have been given gifts. The community of faith in the first century had decided that the more ecstatic gifts were to be preferred over the mundane gifts. So speaking in tongues was considered a higher gift than The gift of hospitality, or the gift of empathy, or even the gift of cooking, or cleaning, or organizing. So Paul says, I just want you to know this. There is no hierarchy of gifts. There's no hierarchy of gifts. They all come from one source. I bet there are people in this room right now, people listening online going, well, I don't really have a gift to contribute. You do. You do. By the nature of being alive... By the nature of being a child of God, a creation of our Father, you have been given gifts. And those gifts can benefit the common good. And Paul just said, listen, you ought to look around you and you ought to have an equal sense of value and worth in the kingdom of God because the source of the gifting is all the same. Don't look at the person and say, well, I think your gift is this and, you know, if you said that instead of this... You've got to look at that and go, you know, in you is a gift of God for the good of the kingdom. And we celebrate it. We think you're immensely valuable. We think, in fact, we couldn't do it without you, which Paul's going to get to. Number three, we're sensitive to common values. Because they had honored some gifts over others, they had driven away people who had gifts that were needed but were less visible. I'm so glad we don't do that anymore in the life of the church. So let's talk about that for just a minute. What do you think the highest valued gifts are? You know, they they have the ecstatic gifts. So speaking in tongues was the thing everybody wanted to do. Why? Because it's highly visible. It's highly visible. You know, you're in the middle of church and the pastor's up there just ranting and raving and droning on and You get a manifestation of the Spirit, and you stand right up in the middle of church and speak in tongues. Everybody's like, whoa. I mean, the pastor had to study all week for that stuff, but that person just got it (laughs) right out of heaven. Boom. And So in the early church, they, they begin to value that over everything else. What do we value? Well, if you can speak. Generally, if you stand up and you're the one speaking from the front, we consider that, well, we couldn't have church without that. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I was weak. <laughs> it's not as encouraging as I'd hoped. <laughs> but we do that. Can you teach? You know, I love that. There was a, a, a talk I heard a few years ago. And it was, it was a, he said basically every church that he grew up in, every year they had a sermon, teach or burn, you know. We need a teacher for this class. God's calling somebody. We're not leaving here until someone is called to teach the junior high boys' cloud. whatever it was. And that used to be how church worked. Can you speak? Can you teach? Can you be up front? Do you know the Bible? Are you good enough? If you are, you're immensely gifted. We need you. Can you sing? We need you to sing. I mean, not do you think you can sing, but will the rest of us think you <laughs> <we> can sing? Because <laughs> that's touchy. You know? Can you play an instrument? Can you get up here on the platform and be a part of this? Are you technical? That's new. We didn't used to have that. Are you technical? Because we need technical. You know, when these screens go off, you're like, uh, that's all I got. I know how the remote works. That's all I got. We need somebody that knows how they work, you know. And Paul's just saying, listen, no, there is a common value, a sensitivity to a common value. And here's what that is every single gift matters all of them you know we have people that show up here every week and work on our landscaping they just plant flowers and stuff and so if you ever come in and go you know I didn't notice all the flowers in the flower bed somebody's doing that she's sitting over there (laughs) some of you have the gift of warmth and empathy you can identify somebody tells you their story you cry you're an empath that's a gift not everybody has it. Can I get an amen? amen? I mean, and you know it. You know, well, this is what's happened to me. I feel blood. Yeah, I got to go. <laughs> See you later, buckaroo. <laughs> Over the years, we've had people that have been at the back of this building. You, I could name their names. And people would be like, you know, when Martha retired, people were like, you know, That's the first person that greeted me. She said hi to me every week. Some people have the gift of warmth and hospitality. And when we do not value equally all the gifts, we lose gifts. People don't feel needed or wanted. And I'm telling you, in the diversity of this congregation, uh, the folks that are watching, there's all kinds of gifts. Some of you can cook, that's a gift. Some of you know hospitality. Some of you, and sometimes in the life of the church, because we narrowly focus all the gifts, so you know you need to be an usher, you need to be a greeter, or you need to be oh, okay. sometimes we get the wrong people in the wrong jobs. Can I get an amen? amen? Some of us come to church and go, you know, that greeter, I gotta go in the back door because that that I don't feel greeted. I feel assaulted. I actually feel I feel threatened. I Amen? I'm not making it up when you don't value the diversity of gifts and you channel people into they get in places they're not gifted and then they serve there forever and nobody will tell them. Amen. I, I, there are people in this room who had a Sunday school teacher and you loved them, but you didn't like them. The last place they were gifted was to teach Sunday school, but somehow because there were only five choices, that was the one that they chose. And it damages the life of community. And so there was a common value. Paul says there's a common value. We know the one source. And when we know the one source, then we value every single gift. So when somebody comes and says, this is my gift, we go, how can we use that gift? Where did that fit in? Because he's going to say later in this chapter, he placed the pieces of the body together just as he wanted them to be. Number four, we are sensitive to common responsibility. Verse 11, all these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. How many, what's a percentage, you know this off the top of your head probably. What's a percentage of people in the life of a church who use their gifts to build a community of faith? Somebody be brave and yell it out. Eight. percent, that's a good answer. Twenty is the actual answer, which is optimistic, but eight is probably more realistic. I don't know what the statistic, you know, who gave it. 20%. 20% of the people in a congregation do 80% of the serving, 80% of the giving, 80% of the work. It happens with 20%. Can you imagine if you just got that number to 50%? And I, I don't blame people for the fact that they sit on the sidelines. We haven't built a community in which we have practiced this common reverence this common source, this common sensitivity and value about who people are and how they're made, we haven't really celebrated the diversity of the kingdom of God. Amen? We've tried to homogenize everybody. And here's the thing that I understand. We, we don't all speak the same language. Amen? I mean, these kids down here on the front row, students, they speak a language I do not speak. And because of that, They speak to people I cannot speak to. That's why the intergenerational life of the church. But sometimes we say to kids, we're going to teach you the four spiritual laws and the Roman road to salvation. And we want you to go speak our language to a new generation. No, we don't. We want you to figure it out. And we want you to speak your language to your generation. And we want you to be you because we cannot speak your language, nor should we try But that's true in a thousand ways. It's not just generational. Sometimes it has to do with our background and our upbringing and our politics. And, and instead of fighting against it and saying we all ought to be homogenous, we ought to celebrate the diversity, believing that in this diversity of the church is the beauty. God, in his infinite creativity, created us differently. And he asks us to then come together, not Celebrating and focusing on our differences, but celebrating our commonality so that the church would be a place that's dynamic. So that anybody that walked in that door would look around and go, I see some of me here. I see some of me here. I fit in. I am loved. I am safe. I am a part of community life. And it's the way it's supposed to be because guess what? We need community. I got a call Friday night. A friend of mine called and said, would you like to go to dinner tonight? And I said, well, yeah, but it's too late. I I already got dinner plans. And he laughed and he said, I figured. And then he said, when I said, I think I'm going to call Dave and Cindy and see if they want to go to dinner. My wife said, well, what made you think of that? Isn't that symptomatic? (laughs) Because we have stopped thinking about that. We stopped thinking in this season of pandemic about doing the normal things we used to do to build friendship and relationship. And you know what? We need it. We need it. We were created to live in relationship and community. Created. There's a deep gnawing need inside of us. And it's time for us to re-engage this process of building community. It's time for us to, on purpose, with intentionality, use the gifts we've been given for the greater good amen all right we're going to close this service by celebrating communion i'm going to invite the band to come up you don't need to be a member of this congregation just that you have prayed a prayer of repentance and we're going to pray a prayer of repentance together if you're online with us, get your elements together we're going to bless the elements in just a moment There is no greater symbol of the unity of church than this moment. In fact, the reason we were given this gift is to celebrate the diversity of the church in union around one table. In a few weeks, I'm going to tell the story about Galatians and the fact that they they celebrated the Lord's Supper. They all came and received the grace, and then they celebrated the love feast. They got the grace and then they shared the grace. They got the grace and then they shared the grace. They got the grace and then they shared the grace. Equals at one table. No Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile, Scythian or barbarian, but all one at one table. That's what we celebrate. Wherever you come from, whatever your background, what unites us is the body. And the blood and the sacrifice of Christ. Would you pray with me? God, we're so very thankful that you love us like this. That you created us in our uniqueness and then you invited all of us to be in the same pursuit. Not to be like each other, but to be like you. That while all of us come from a lot of different places, we're all headed to the same place. Inviting you to... Purify us and refine us in a way that we are being ever changed into the image of Christ. Christ who holds together in perfect unity the diversity and the reverence of the life of God. May we be those people. May we seek you, seek your will, seek your way above all else. But may we be people who throw our hearts and minds and spirits and arms wide open to the diversity of your kingdom. Lead us. We prepare our hearts for this table. We recognize it as a symbol of our unity. We trust in the power of your blood and of your body, of the sacrifice to cleanse us of our sins. But we also trust the power of your Holy Spirit to lead us and teach us and grow us. Not just us personally, but others. We entrust others to your care and leadership, to your conviction and guidance. We trust you. We believe you're alive and active. You're at work. We trust you. We prepare our hearts for this table by confessing to you our sins. We're so thankful that your word promises that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so we dedicate these elements to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that in these moments you would apportion grace to each person as they have need the body of our Lord Jesus Christ which was broken for you preserve you blameless unto everlasting life take and eat the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ which was shed for you preserve you blameless unto everlasting life take and drink in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful Now, God, as we respond to your word, as we really respond to your word, not just some rote repetition, but as we search for how you would teach and lead and convict and change and call and invite us, I pray that you would hear our prayer. I pray that you would remind every person, whether they're listening online, whether they'll listen later in the week, whether they're sitting in this room, we need your help. Lead us in our response, we pray in your name. And everybody said together, amen. Amen. Will you stand as we respond? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.